There have in uh, recent years been many attempts uh, on uh, stations like the Discovery Channel and History Channel and uh, in various books and other things to discover who the real Jesus is. In, in fact, there, was, um, there were even a group of uh, scholars at one time called the Jesus Seminar who gathered together uh, uh, in this uh, kind of a, a secluded room in Europe and they went through the New Testament and they tried to pull out of the text the things that they thought were definitely about Jesus. And then they evaluated the rest of the gospel text to, to define which things might have been about Jesus, maybe what things were an exaggeration about his life, and which things were just completely uh, untrue, completely false. Now, obviously, these were not all uh, conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing uh, sorts of scholars. But it was interesting because they would go through the Gospels, and, and as they came across uh, these different uh, accounts, different tellings of things in Jesus' life, they would vote on how likely they thought uh, that passage was true or true of Jesus, whether it was true of the historical Jesus or whether it was like somewhat true or an exaggeration or just outright false. And they would vote by these different colored marbles. Now, the whole thing is just silly. To me, it just sounds like a bunch of nerds who got in a room that wanted to play with marbles and they needed a good excuse to do it. But that's what they do. And so they would, they would, it was an, an anonymous vote and they would drop, you know, these different colored marbles based on their decision of whether or not what they saw in a particular uh, portion of the Gospels was true about Jesus or not. And they would vote on those things that way. And of course, you know, they came out with their, with their canon uh, uh, of Scripture and those things which were true, uh, true about Jesus. And in so doing, had, had largely gutted most of the, of the New Testament Gospels uh, as we know them today. But there has been, for many years in history, just people who, who want to learn about who the real Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? And so that's why we see shows on the Discovery Channel and the and Discovery Network and, and History Channel and, and all these other things with uh, so-called experts that are being interviewed about who this real Jesus was. What did he look like? What did he sound like? What, you know, what, what sort of things did he you know, eat and do and say and those kinds of things? But very often what I find is that in these quests to find the historical Jesus or the real Jesus, uh, the one thing that is most often neglected are the stories that we have most directly about Jesus, which are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so here we are in the third Gospel, not necessarily written in that order, but it's the third that's presented to us uh, in our New Testaments today, the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, who is writing in order to tell a friend of his, Theophilus, about who the real Jesus is. This is just how Luke begins his gospel. And then we'll get into the particulars that are there in your handout. This is how Luke begins his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, Luke says. It seemed good to me. It seemed like a good idea. <clears throat> Uh, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is the, the person that Luke is writing his gospel for. Uh, now, I, I think Luke is also writing his gospel for the church at large, but it's quite possible that this guy, Theophilus, was a wealthy uh, Greek person who was who actually the patron, uh, the funding patron of Luke's work. So he paid for Luke to write the gospel, basically. And so Luke, is this is his finished product, okay? It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke's gospel is a gospel about, uh, with, the, uh, with the intended purpose of showing who the real Jesus is. And so as we read through Luke's gospel, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Who is this Jesus? Now, uh, to the particulars, the things that are, that are there in your, your handout, and we'll work through these things. The author. It's not um, specifically noted here in the text, but second century accounts, uh, that is like from 100 to, two, or, yeah, 100 to 200 uh, AD, second century accounts attribute this book to Luke, who is the doctor, the physician, and missionary companion of Paul. You can read about him a little bit in Colossians 4. 
Uh, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And so Luke and Acts are kind of like sister volumes, twin sets that work together. Luke is volume one of what Jesus began to do in his ministry. And Acts is volume two. It's what the disciples did after Jesus' ascension. The date of the writing is most likely sometime between 60 and 62 A.D., and that's about as precise as we can get. There are some who think uh, other dates as well, but I think 60 to 62 A.D. Is, is, uh, is, is probably about as accurate as we can be. Uh, Luke's Gospel, written sometime shortly after Mark's. Remember when we were in Mark a couple months ago, we saw Mark wrote his Gospel sometime in the mid to late 50s, early 60s. Um, Luke's gospel uses nearly 60% of Mark's gospel verbatim. That is, 60% of Mark's gospel, word for word, exists in Luke's gospel. And a similar thing is true of Matthew as well. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke have come to be known as the synoptic gospels. That means the, the one view or the one perspective gospels, because they all kind of tell the story of Jesus' life in more or less the same way. And they have much content that is in common. Luke himself was a doctor, a physician, and a Greek Gentile who traveled with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys. And his gospel, uh, because Luke is a Greek uh, and a Gentile, his gospel lacks many of the Hebraisms, so the, the Hebrew kind of words that we would expect to see or, or, or that we would find in the gospel like Matthew and even in some of John. Luke itself is the longest gospel. It's about twice as long as Mark. If you were to sit down and read it, which I, I hope you have done in the weeks preceding, uh, you found it would probably take you maybe two, two and a half hours to sit and read it uh, silently to yourself, whereas Mark's gospel takes maybe an hour to an hour and a half. If I were to summarize Luke in just a few short sentences, I would do it this way, and you have this uh, here in your guide. Luke's gospel is the first of the twin works known as Luke Acts. This gospel is, as, Paul, as Luke says, an orderly account of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection as recalled by eyewitnesses so that Luke's audience, uh, primarily Theophilus, but also the church, may have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught. Luke centers on the theme of salvation from sin through the only Savior, Jesus. And in so doing, Luke shows that Jesus comes seeking and saving the lost, both the lost sheep of Israel as well as the Gentiles and the outcasts of society. Jesus, as this seeking Savior, is the full realization of the promises of the Old Testament. That's Luke in a nutshell for you. And there are two major themes that, that kind of run all throughout Luke, and, and you'll see as we work through Luke tonight that, that we'll hit on these uh, frequently. First, Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. Secondly, salvation is revealed among unexpected people. Salvation is revealed among unexpected people. Looking at Luke in the scope of redemption history, that is, you know, in the scope of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, Luke centers squarely on redemption, right? That, that Christ has now come, God in the flesh has, has been conceived uh, in, in the womb of this teenage virgin girl, Mary, uh, and has been born. God is among us in the man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human. He's here and he has come to redeem us. So if you have your, uh, your pencil or pen, just go ahead and circle that word uh, redemption there in your outline. That's where Luke is and where Luke centers and, and focuses. As we're reading Luke, we do much the same thing as we would do as we're reading uh, uh, the gospel of Mark. Because the genre of Luke is gospel. Right? The gospel genre is unique among Scripture. We said the last time when we were in Mark, because it is part biography and part historical narrative, uh, but it's highly specialized in its focus. All of the gospels have the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Jewish Messiah as their central theme and purpose. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have that as their central theme and purpose. And while each of the four gospels differs in their perspectives on Jesus' life and ministry, they all hold in common that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of this divine Savior King. And so when you're reading the Gospels, when you're reading Luke in your own time, ask yourself these following questions to help yourself kind of understand the text and work through the text a little bit on your own. What is this text telling me about who Jesus is? And that's what the Gospels are concerned with, who, who this Jesus is. So we need to see who this Jesus is when we read the Gospels. Secondly, what is this text revealing to me about myself? So what is the Scripture saying about who I am and what my relationship 
to God is? What is this text telling me about what I need to know about Jesus and apply to my life? Third, what does this text reveal about how I should be following Jesus? All four of the, you'll probably notice that these are the same questions that we remind ourselves to ask when we were uh, reading, uh, as we read through the Gospel of Mark. But the same is true of the Gospel of Luke, because their purposes are the same. To point us to Jesus, to help us to see Jesus, and to follow Him rightly. Now, the Gospel of Luke is organized sort of this way. I mean, from the first chapter to the the last chapter. So, chapter 1 through uh, the end of chapter 2, is the birth and the childhood of, of Jesus. Okay? The birth narrative, we have the, the angels singing to the shepherds at night, right? Uh, we, we, uh, most of the time at Christmas time when we're reading the account of, uh, of the nativity and, and Christ's birth, we read most often out of Luke. In, Luke's chap- in Luke chapters 3 and 4, we have Jesus preparing for his ministry. And in chapters 4 through 9, we have Jesus ministering in Galilee. So his, his hometown, his home region, there near the Sea of Galilee, ministering there and to the people that are there. But then in that, chapter 9, verse 51, a significant shift happens. Chapter 9, verse 51 says, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And from chapter 9, verse 51 through the end of Luke, it's all about... Jesus moving to Jerusalem so that he might minister in Jerusalem and so that he might die for the sins of mankind and be raised from the dead. And so chapter 9, verse 51 is this significant sort of shifting point in the Gospel of Luke. And so from 951 through 1927, we have Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. It takes him 10 chapters to get to Jerusalem which is really not that long when you think about it. Um, And from chapter 1921 through 2138, uh, Jesus is there ministering in Jerusalem. He's teaching, he's um, confronting the Pharisees and others. From 22 to 23 uh, is the suffering and the death of Jesus. And from 24, well, that's the last chapter. The last chapter of Luke is the resurrection and Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, proving that he has, in fact, defeated sin and death. Now, we're not going to move through Luke um, in order of how it's been uh, written to us. We're going to move through it sort of thematically, okay? We're going to do that by asking uh, three main questions. We said earlier that Luke is, Luke is writing to essentially answer this question, who is this Jesus? He wants to give an orderly account to his patron, Theophilus, as to all the things that he's learned. And so he doesn't want Theophilus to be confused about anything, but to have all of the facts. And so we are reading Luke to understand the facts of who Jesus is. And so we come to the first question, which is this. What sort of man is Jesus? What sort of man is he? We learn from chapter 3, verse 22, through uh, just about the end of the chapter, that he's no ordinary man. Instead, he's the the Son of God. Luke chapter 3, verse 22, says this. This is Jesus at um, uh, at his baptism. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven Uh, came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. He's no ordinary man, he's the son of God. Right? We read earlier in Luke's gospel that that Jesus is conceived by work of the Holy Spirit in uh, the Virgin Mary. And in chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And I know all of you are going to run straight home and read this whole genealogy because you can't get enough of genealogies. This is how it starts and this is how it ends. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, on and on and on and on and on. And we get down to verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so Luke, in order to show that Jesus is no ordinary man, traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, the Son of God, to show that Jesus is the Son of God. He's no ordinary man. And as Son of God, He's also Lord of all creation. And we know that He's Lord of all creation because He's Lord of the Sabbath. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. 
On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, What are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and, when, uh, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. How is it that we can go from Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath to Jesus being the Lord of all creation? Well, what's significant about the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath is the seventh day of creation, right? The day on which God rests. And not, God does not rest because he's tired. God does not grow tired in creation, right? God does not grow tired ever. But he spends six days creating, and then on the seventh he rests as a king sits on a throne to rule over his kingdom. And so Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, which, which means I'm Lord of the day of rest, which is Lord of the day of ruling. And if he's Lord of the day of ruling, he's Lord of the, all the other days that come before. Okay? So because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he's Lord of all creation. He's no ordinary man. He's the Son of God, the Lord of all. This Jesus, though he's fully human, is totally unlike any other human that has ever existed. He's God in the flesh conceived in the womb of a poor teenage virgin girl by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. This is God among us as a human, the creator and sustainer of the universe with skin on. That's who Jesus says. So that's the question. What sort of man is Jesus? The second question is this. What has he come to do? What has this Jesus come to do? This God in the flesh, what, what's his purpose? What's he doing? And this is the central theme of Luke. Jesus has come to first proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus is preaching in a synagogue. And he says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus says, I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That is, Jesus as king, we talked about this this morning as we were working through the last bit of Matthew. Jesus as king is bringing with him a kingdom, and it is God's kingdom. And in that kingdom, there will be a wholly other different kind of way of living. There's now a, a, a way for people to be rescued, to be redeemed, to be placed into a right relationship with God. And Jesus is heralding that kingdom. But more than just coming to seek and to save, or excuse me, more than just coming to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, Jesus is coming to seek and to save the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus has this really awesome party and a meal with this uh, less than beloved tax collector named Zacchaeus, who by all accounts was a wee little man. And Jesus parties at Zacchaeus' house, right? Not crazy, but they just felt they're having a big meal. Everybody's over there having a really good time. Zacchaeus has been redeemed. He's come to know the Lord. He's, he's reconciling relationships. He's restoring uh, money that he's defrauded from people. He's restoring that money back to them. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says to, uh, uh, says to them, says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, speaking of Zacchaeus. For the Son of Man, Jesus says, came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came, to seek the lost and to save the lost. The parables of Luke chapter 15, the the triplet parables, uh, demonstrate this in, in beautiful, illustrative form. In Luke chapter 15, we have these three parables. There's a parable of the lost sheep. There's a parable of the lost coin, and there's a parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. In that order, boom, 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 Jesus gives all three of those. Jesus here in these three parables, the master storyteller tells three stories of finding lost things, of increasing importance, right? A sheep, lose sheep, that's, you know, you lost some property, but you go after it, you find the sheep, and that's good. And there's much rejoicing when you find that sheep. Lose a coin, and that's a little bit more valuable. Um, uh, the, the idea uh, there is that this woman has 10 silver coins. That's all she has. And she loses one. She loses 10% of all that she owns. And so she turns her house upside down to find that which she lost. And when finding it, there is much rejoicing. So the sheep was one of 100. The coin is one of 10. And then we have this parable of the prodigal son who is one of only two. 
this son who takes his inheritance early and moves to the big city and squanders, squanders his wealth with reckless living to the point where he has no money and he's eating the food that the pigs eat. He's literally eating pig slop with the pigs. He has nothing left. And having nothing left, he returns back home to his father and, and says to his, and is prepared to say to his father, look, just make me like any of one of your other house servants and I'll be happy to be here. I've got nothing else. I've got nowhere to go. I'll come back and I'll just, I'll work as a slave for you, you know, and that's fine. I'll have a place to live. But when the father sees the son coming down the road, right, from a long way off, he has compassion. His heart is broken for his son who is returning. And there is much rejoicing when his son returns. And so in the same way, Jesus goes about to seek and to save the lost, because when the lost are found, there is much rejoicing. Third question. So what sort of man is Jesus? What does he come to do? Third question, how does Jesus go about his ministry? How does he accomplish his ministry? Well, he accomplishes his ministry by overturning expectations. Right? Jesus at every turn in Luke is, is, is turning the world on its head and turning expectations on their heads and turning the assumptions of what was, uh, what was proper for a rabbi to do on their head. He does this in several ways. First, he does this by including and blessing women. In his ministry, he includes and blesses women. Women in the, in the book of Luke and, and also in Acts are present from the beginning of the text all the way through the end. First woman we see is Elizabeth, the woman after whom the, my middle daughter is named. Elizabeth, who's the mother of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Elizabeth is an old woman and barren. She has had no child. And yet God visits her even in her barrenness and in her old age and helps her to conceive so that she might have a son. The next woman we meet is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not an old barren woman, but a young unmarried virgin. And here God chooses this uh, young girl to be the bearer of his own son. And through a miracle of the Holy Spirit causes her to conceive That's the beginning. But even at the end of Luke's gospel, we see women there as well, mourning at the cross. When all of his disciples have left, save John, the the only people left to mourn Jesus, to be there with Jesus in the moment of his death, are these women who have faithfully followed him. So the presence of women is just all over Luke, and it's present in Acts as well. And when we get to Acts, we'll look at that also. But there's also this woman, this sinful woman, who anoints Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7, verse 37 and then 44 through 50. When uh, Trevor Clark was uh, here preaching for us on a Sunday morning a few weeks ago, this is the text that he preached. Luke chapter 7, verse uh, 37. Behold, a woman of the city. This is while Jesus is eating in a Pharisee's house, by the way. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. The Pharisee is asking a question like uh, of Jesus. He asks the question like, why, why would she waste all of this money on this perfume for such a thing? Like she could have sold the perfume and given the money to the poor. And Jesus responds this way in verse 44. Turning to the woman, he says to Simon, who is the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who forgives even sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman is not the only woman besides Mary and, uh, besides Mary and Elizabeth and the women at the cross. We also see two other sisters, Mary and Martha, who love Jesus. Their brother Lazarus, we read in, uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus raises from the dead. In uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, we have Jesus at Mary and Martha's house. 
and Mary and Martha are there. And uh, Martha is in the kitchen doing the wash. She's cleaning up all the dishes. And Mary is hanging out with Jesus, listening to what he has to do, to what, what he is teaching and what he is saying and those sorts of things. And Martha gets mad because she's like, Mary, you, you ought to be in the kitchen with me helping to wash the dishes. And Jesus, uh, so Martha, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, you don't even care that my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so here Jesus uh, uh, emphasizes, highlights, honors the faith of this sister, Mary. Uh, who is sitting at his feet learning. And Martha, we will see, uh, also becomes just a, a very faithful servant uh, to Jesus over the course of, uh, of Luke. So we've got Mary and Elizabeth. We've got the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. We've got Mary and Martha, the sisters. And we've also got this uh, crippled woman in the synagogue in Luke chapter 13. There Jesus sees this woman who's just bent over, crippled. Her, her spine is just curled over. Reminds me of uh, my grandmother who just, uh, with every year that went by, she just got a little bit shorter and a little bit shorter. But here's this woman in the synagogue that Jesus sees that just has compassion on her and, and heals her uh, and, and, and regards her for her faith. And in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we see groups of women or a group of women that are counted uh, among those who are moving about the, the area with Jesus and even serving him. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, those, the, his twelve disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who was Herod's household manager. So Herod, who was sort of the, uh, the, the token king of Israel at the time, his household manager's wife was a follower of Jesus. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there are women that are following Jesus even throughout his regular ministry. We see Jesus going to a widow whose son has died in Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 17. And for a woman in that day who was a widow who had a son, for her son to die was a, was a major tragedy. Because now her husband is gone and she can have no more children through her husband. And she's got a son and, and, and very, there was much pride in, in having sons and, and them going on to carry on the family line. But now her son has died. And Jesus, out of compassion for the, for the state that this woman is, is in, heals her son that she might be restored in a sense by his being raised from the dead. Now, all of this is not to say that Luke's gospel is a feminist gospel. Okay? Not by any means. But instead, Luke is highlighting the role and activity of women in Jesus' ministry to show that the Messiah is for all people, both men and women. But more than this, Jesus is demonstrating and asserting a particular sort of dignity for women in his ministry. He honors their faith. He honors their humility. He highlights their sacrificial service and also their place among humanity as the bearers and nurturers of our children. Women, by God's design, are worthy of honor and dignity. And Jesus not only does that, but he exemplifies for all of us how to do the same. So husbands, you want to know how to treat your wives? Read the Gospel of Luke and see how Jesus interacts with women. Young men, you thinking about uh, 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 girls you might want to date or you may want to marry, and you want to know how to treat a woman when you're in a dating relationship, look not to the world or to GQ magazine. Look to the Gospel of Luke and see how Jesus treats women. And you treat women that way. So Jesus not only includes and blesses women in his ministry, but secondly, he exalts the poor and he humbles the rich. He exalts the poor and humbles the rich. This might be nowhere more evident than even in just how he is born and to whom he is born. He's born to a poor couple. Joseph and Mary are dirt poor. They're not dirt poor. They po. They can't even afford the O or the R, Right? They've got nothing. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 23, we see that when Jesus is eight days old and they take him to the temple to be circumcised and to, to offer the sacrifice for the firstborn son, uh, normally the sacrifice would be a, a lamb less than a year old that was spotless and, uh, and, and unblemished. But uh, the law provides for poor people as well. And a poor couple, a poor family who has a son that they have to you know, give a sacrifice for, if they can't afford a lamb, or they only have like one lamb in the house, uh, and, and if they kill that one, 
they'll have nothing. There's provision for them to offer instead two turtle doves. And so do Mary and Joseph do in the temple. They offer two turtle doves, indicating that they were very poor. And after Jesus is born, or prior to Jesus being born, excuse me, Mary exults in song to the Lord. And part of her song in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 52 and 53 is this. He, speaking of God, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Jesus is born to a poor family. God chooses a poor family for his son to be born into. But his ministry begins also with good news for the poor that the kingdom is here. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is for poor people. He's for poor people. He wants to exalt them spiritually, right? To lift them up, encourage them. Jesus likewise blesses the poor and cries woe over the rich. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this. This is Luke's, uh, Luke's telling of the Beatitudes like from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Luke writes, this, that Luke writes that Jesus says this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And Luke 6, 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This highlighting of the importance or, or just the, 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 the blessing that comes with being poor and not being encumbered with things of the world, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to not have a lot of stuff. Because when you don't have a whole lot of stuff, you can see God a whole lot more clearly. We also have this incident in Jesus' life with this rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. Many of you probably know this very well. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. So here you have this young man who's amassed for himself much wealth, who when hearing from Jesus that he ought to sell all of those things and give it to the poor and follow Jesus instead, goes away sad, not following Jesus, holding on to his wealth because he loves his wealth so much. By exalting the poor and humbling the rich, this Jesus is showing that his kingdom is not one that can be purchased by worth or by wealth and influence. You can't buy your way into the kingdom. Instead, the kingdom of God requires humility and brokenness. Full dependence on God for all things. Things which the poor are far more ready and able to express than the rich who have much and by their wealth have given themselves much to lose. So you who here are, are here today and you are struggling, you are living literally paycheck to paycheck, you are struggling financially, take heart in knowing that you have much more room in your life to trust God with. You have far fewer things encumbering you from following Jesus because of your poverty. And know that Jesus, who was born to a poor family, has riches for you in heaven because of your faith in Him that cannot compare to the wealth of this world. Missionary Jim Elliott said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We do well to not go away sad from Jesus like this rich young ruler, but instead to go away happy by selling all of our things, giving to the poor, that we might follow Jesus without the hindrances, without the encumbrance uh, of the things of this world on us. So Jesus' ministry is one of calling people to simple living, modest living, generous, sacrificial living, because by giving away, we're able to follow him all the more well. Third, Jesus reveals his kingdom through unexpected people. Four different kinds of people that we'll look at. First, tax collectors. 
We know that tax collectors were hated by Jews in, uh, in the area because tax collectors were these Jewish people who had contracted with the Roman government, the invading, occupying government, to collect taxes for them. And so the Jews did not like tax collectors. And yet Jesus comes and he reveals the kingdom through just these kinds of people. He calls Levi, Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his followers. And he eats in his home, fellowships with him. We already looked at Zacchaeus in uh, Luke chapter 19, wherein uh, Jesus, this tax collector, Zacchaeus, prominent tax collector, uh, comes to know Jesus uh, and, and changes his life because of knowing Jesus. And Jesus recognizes him for it. We also have in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's, this is the parable. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says this, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, that is an expert in the law, very religious man, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus so comes for people who are unexpected, like like tax collectors, that, that he even uses them in his stories as the hero of his stories to illustrate this kind of kingdom kind of living, what it really looks like to be humble, that the person who is despised by the Jews is here in Jesus's story, the one who exemplifies true obedience and humility. Not the hero of their religion, but, but the person that they hated. Jesus uses tax collectors to reveal the kingdom. He also uses sinners to do this. We read about this sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7. This woman, we don't know what her sins are, but we can assume it was probably something like prostitution. Her sins who were many, right, Jesus forgives because of her love for him. We have also Jesus extending the kingdom even to a thief who's crucified next to Jesus in Luke chapter 23. This thief who, while the other thief on the other side is is mocking Jesus. This thief turns uh, and, and says, Do you not fear God? He says this to the other thief who's mocking Jesus. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly uh, are, are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to this thief on the cross, dying for crimes he had committed, while Jesus is there dying for crimes he has not committed, says to this criminal, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus reveals the kingdom in tax collectors. He reveals the kingdom to sinners. He reveals the kingdom to Gentiles, that is ethnic non-Jews, people who are not Jewish by birth. He does this in, in one story that is incredibly popular. We all know it very well, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Samaritans were these half-breed kind of people. So Jews that were left behind uh, during the Babylonian exile in the Old Testament, they stayed there in Palestine. They mar- intermarried with the Canaanites and others. And so they were not pure-blood Jews. And so when the Jews uh, who returned from Babylon came, there was much conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, these mixed-blooded, mixed-raced people. The Samaritans were hated, and yet Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of his parable about what it means to be a neighbor to someone else. In Luke chapter 17, we have this this story of Jesus healing these ten lepers. Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And we saw them. He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And when they were cleansed, and as they went, they were cleansed. Their, their leprosy was healed. And one of them said, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found? to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
So Jesus, in extending his kingdom through unexpected people, even does so through Gentiles, through Samaritans, through outcasts and downtrodden people. Not just that, but, but even children. Jesus reveals the kingdom through tax collectors, enemies of the state, through sinners, through Gentiles, and then through children, through people who have no influence in society whatsoever. Jesus reveals and extends the kingdom to. Luke chapter 19, verses 15 through 17. We read this. Now they, that is the crowds, were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Jesus, you can't touch the babies. You can't hang out with the kids. Jesus called to them, called, uh, called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. To these people who have no influence in society whatsoever, no ability to make any decision of their own, nobody listens to, cares about a child, to these belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, think those of you who are parents, think about the level of faith that your children have in you. How much they trust you for everything, whether they realize it or not. Jesus says the same kind of of trust in the heavenly father must accompany us as, as we must be characteristic of us as we seek to enter into the kingdom. As we, if we want to enter into the kingdom, we receive it as a child would. Luke, who was himself a Gentile, a Greek, highlights these aspects of Jesus' ministry to unexpected people, especially to tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles and children, to make the point that Christ is and has come for all. There is not a person on this earth for whom Christ has not come, church. And there is no person on this earth who cannot be saved by, saved by faith in Jesus. All can be saved by faith in Jesus, but you must have faith in Jesus to be saved. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've come through. It doesn't matter what sort of sin you might be in in the middle of your life right now. If you trust Jesus, you can be saved. If you trust Jesus, you can have forgiveness of those sins and new life with God now and eternal life with God in the resurrection. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, the color of your skin, whether you're a male or a female, whether you're six years old or 96 years old. If you want to be saved, trust Jesus. He has come for all. Jesus reveals his kingdom through unexpected people. But in Luke, we also see Jesus overturns these expectations by dying for his people and being raised again. In Luke chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 18, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is going to come. He tells them that the Messiah must suffer for the sins of the world. He tells them that. They don't understand what he's talking about, but he's telling them all the same. And then after it happens in Luke chapter 24, we'll look at this a little bit more here in just a moment. He even reminds them that it was necessary that he die for them. This Jesus who dies in the place of sinners is entirely unlike any other religious leader ever in the history of the world. Okay, when Buddha died... He didn't die to purchase enlightenment or nirvana for faithful Buddhists. When Muhammad died, he didn't make any way for Muslims to be right with Allah through his death. And when the uh, acclaimed atheist Christopher Hitchens died just a couple of years ago, he left no real hope for his many fans and followers that would last beyond the grave. More importantly, when each of these men died, they stayed dead. But Jesus, on the other hand, dies for our sins. That is, he takes our place on the cross. He himself takes the punishment due for our sin. We're rebellious against God in our sin and our disobedience. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's punishment. But Christ has taken our place for us on that cross. He's made a way for us to be right with God. And what's more than that, he rose from the dead, defeating it forever. We don't worship a Savior who's still in the grave. We worship a Savior who's living, standing at the right hand of God, ruling over all creation right now. No one ever in history beside Jesus can lay claim to these things. And yet any human, any humble, mere human who believes that Jesus is the son of God and confesses him as Lord will be given eternal life. Nowhere else in any other religion in the world, any other faith system in the world can lay claim to a savior like Jesus who does crazy things like dying on the behalf of sinners like taking punishment that he doesn't deserve, that we might reap the benefits of God's grace to us by faith in him. That's who this Jesus is, Luke says. So let's see Christ a little bit more in depth 
in Luke. Three, three things that we need to do to, to respond to Jesus, respond to Christ as we read Luke. First, see that Jesus is the promised king of Israel. See it. Observe it. Okay? Know that. In Luke chapter 19, verse 38, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the week before he'll be crucified, he's blessed as king by the people who come. They're waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna in the highest, and, uh, and praising the king who is coming. When he is arrested and tried uh, by Pilate, questioned by Pilate, the Roman governor of the, of the time, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. From there, he goes to the Sanhedrin. And they question him. They say, are you the son of God then? And he says, you say that I am. When Jesus is on the cross, he is mocked by soldiers and those watching saying, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. And even the sign on the cross above Jesus' head says, this is the king of the Jews. And while all of these references, uh, uh, except for the one as he's coming into Jerusalem, all of the others are, are intended to be bitterly sarcastic. Right? They, they are mocking Jesus by calling him king. But what they are missing, what they don't understand, is that each accusation is actually highly ironic because the one thing that they're trying to do, they're, they're actually doing the opposite. In trying to mock and deride Jesus, they're actually calling him what he is. Jesus is the promised king of Israel. Secondly, know that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills the scriptures. Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills the scriptures. That is to say, every promise of the Old Testament finds its yes in Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verses uh, 16 through 21, we we read a portion of this already. This is where Jesus is preaching in the uh, synagogue. He uh, opens the prophet Isaiah, scroll of Isaiah, and he reads... Uh, what we read earlier, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 here in Luke chapter 4. Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 being that passage of the suffering servant, right? The servant who will come, who will serve God by dying for the sins of God's people. Luke chapter 23, verse uh, 37, we read this. I'll find it. The soldiers also mocked Jesus coming up, offering him sour wine, saying, If you uh, are the king, I'm sorry, that's Luke 23, not 22. Luke 22, verse 37. He says, um, let's begin in verse 35. He said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, No, nothing. He said to them, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment, Jesus says. And they said, Look, here are two swords. Jesus said, It's enough. Um, this whole conversation about swords is much more about personal protection in a world in which uh, people were robbed on a daily basis going to and fro. It's not about Jesus calling an army together, okay? But he's saying, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What is that scripture? He was numbered with the transgressors. Comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant passage. Jesus says, what is written about me in Isaiah 53 has its fulfillment. And then in Luke chapter 24, post-resurrection. Um, one of my, my favorite passages, Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus with two of his followers, two of his disciples, and they don't recognize who Jesus is at first. And so he's walking them. It's like, Hey dudes, what's up? They're like, not much. We're kind of bummed out. There was this guy, Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah. And a few days ago he died. And, uh, and now some of his disciples are saying, um, that, that he's alive and we're not really sure what to do with that. And Jesus says in uh, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Later on, the disciples say to them to, to one another in verse 32, they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And then later he appears to his disciples again in verses 44 and following. And he, there he says to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that is, Jesus says, the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they're about me. The prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, they're about me. The Psalms, which also, which is just a summary way of speaking also of the Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and Job, all of scripture, Jesus. Jesus says, it's about me. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be, uh, be raised from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah who fulfills the scriptures. He answers every promise of the Old Testament with a resounding yes. So we see that Jesus is the promised king of Israel. We know that he is the Messiah who fulfills the scriptures. Third and finally, the only thing left to do in response is then to turn in faith to Jesus who pays for your sin. Turn in faith to Jesus who pays for your sin. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He gives instructions for his, uh, for his disciples to follow. Verse... Uh, 14 and following, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the, the night he'll be arrested. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. A better way of understanding that is given on your behalf. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So here Jesus is saying, look, I, I'm about to be arrested. I'm about to die. And in my dying, in my body being broken, in my blood being spilled, I am doing so for you, for your benefit, on your behalf. And so every time you come to this table and eat this bread and drink this cup, remember what I've done for you. Church, the only thing left to do with this Jesus is to turn in faith to him who has paid for your sin. The good news of Luke is that this Jesus, the Son of God, comes for all sorts of sinners. Every shape and size and color and gender. This is why the angels declare to the shepherds that the news of Jesus' birth is good news for all people. Therefore, we need to walk in faithful obedience to Christ with the confidence that Christ, that Jesus himself said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and who keep it, who follow it, who obey it. Church, we are called to, in reading the Gospel of Luke, hear what Luke is saying about who Jesus is. This is the real Jesus. The real Jesus is not the guy that's being talked about on History Channel at 8 p.m. Eastern. Amen. Okay, that's not the real Jesus, I don't think. My guess is, is probably not. But the real Jesus is here in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all each with a different perspective on Jesus' life, although entirely consistent with one another, showing us that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills the Scriptures, who must be trusted, in Him alone must be trusted, for salvation from sins.